Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has an international litigation practice. He's been recognized by Chambers, Best Lawyers in America, and as a Law 360 trial ace for his significant record of trial victories for clients nationwide. He serves as the global head of his firm's intellectual property practice. A partner in the New York office of Aiken Gump, Stephen Zager, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Stephen. Let's jump into our questions. What personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in developing business and retaining clients? I think chief among the qualities that the clients look for is the ability to listen. And I'm concerned that with all of our electronic communication today, we're losing the fine art of listening and the art of conversation. Because when a client has a significant problem, they want to know that their lawyer is going to listen to what they have to say. And I mean, listen, not just nod your head, but to internalize what you're hearing in a meaningful way and be prepared to act upon it. And I've always been a pretty good listener. I've also been blessed with a curiosity about how things work. I was that kid that took things apart when I was younger to try and figure out how to put them back together again. And so I I find that that sort of native curiosity serves me very, very well. And then finally, I think clients really look for somebody who runs toward a problem rather than away from it. And by that, I mean, if you make your clients' problems your problems and you try to figure out how to solve those problems in a creative way, then I think you're going to enjoy success. Great points. And I have to say, very timely, we interviewed the head of Harvard Law School Executive Education this morning, and we were talking about millennials and whether there might be a challenge feeling comfortable in communication, really listening, not multitasking, and and that idea of being caring about their clients. Do you have any experiences that you can share, either best practices or things that you do on a regular basis that show your clients that you, A, are listening, are you know, definitely curious about their business? Maybe you read about their business, attend events you know, in the particular sectors in which you're focused, or is there something you do regularly in communicating with your clients that really shows that you're a member of their team and you're there to help them? Well, certainly you've hit on some of the key elements. You need to understand your client's business. You need to understand your client's view of your role in that business. You know, when most clients need a lawyer, they're not thinking of accentuating their revenue stream. They're thinking, this is going to be expensive, and this is probably going to cost me some money, and it's probably money I didn't budget for. And as a result, I don't know anybody who welcomes a trial lawyer with open arms. It's sort of like looking forward to seeing your oncologist. You know, everybody's happy to have a good oncologist when they need them, but nobody's going to go by and have lunch with their oncologist before they do. 
And so I think if you stay abreast of what your clients are doing, I've had really pleasant experiences with the millennials you mentioned. And what I love is they're impatient. And when you're a trial lawyer, being impatient can serve you pretty well. They want to know the answer and they're willing to work as hard as it takes to get there. I think the old paradigm of the carrot and the stick paradigm I was raised with doesn't work. They're not motivated in that way. And I think it's incumbent upon those of us in the generation before them to figure out what does motivate them and approach them in that way. And when you do that, I think you get great results. Can you give an example? Sure. I mean, I think that most of the millennials are looking to belong to something greater than themselves. They want a sense of purpose. And so that's changed the way that we staff our cases. We bring the millennials in at the very beginning. We involve them in discussions of case strategy. We introduce them to the client. We take them to court because we found that when they feel that they're a part of something larger than themselves, that gives them a tremendous amount of job satisfaction. And so, again, I come back to listening. What we did was we went out to our millennials and said, hey, tell us what you're thinking. Tell us how we can better design our systems and our management to deal with your aspirations. And I think it's been a huge hit with our millennials. And I know I've learned a few new tricks as an old dog. So there you go. <laughs> so let's talk about communicating with clients, being visible in the market. And of course, you're right. When you're you know, litigating matters, you're not talking to the same clients over and over, but you have to be in the market and people have to be aware. Organizations, clients, potential clients have to be aware of the work that you do. How do you communicate mostly with the market about the work that you specifically do and the work that you do on behalf of Aiken Gump as far as you know, creating new opportunities for business, whether that be litigation or work for the other practices? Well, like every other firm, we have a weekly newsletter. But in talking to our clients, I'm not sure they really appreciate it. Every once in a while, You'll get a client to say, well, I read that article and it was very informative and very helpful. But when you consider the fact that we blanket our client base with the newsletter, and I've probably heard anecdotally those types of comments from less than a dozen clients over the last five years, it leads me to conclude that a lot of the information is just at a saturation point. And so I found that as a general rule, if your clients become your good friends, and many of mine are, then they stay aware of what you're doing. You stay aware of what they're doing. I mean, when I travel to different cities and I have clients in those cities, I never fail to ask the client out to lunch or dinner or for a cup of coffee or a cocktail because everything about business development in the legal world is personal. The days of being able to take somebody to a ball game and get a case, they're pretty much over. And it's been my experience that people are very gracious when you invite them to a ball game or a concert, but they really value the time spent with their family. And if you take them away from their family for a block of time like that, they almost have a sense of dread and obligation that they need to go with you because of the longstanding relationship. But I'm not sure they enjoy it as much as they used to in the 1980s. It's a different world today. Time is precious. And the other thing you've got to do is you got to talk to your clients. You know, I come back to listening because I think it's so important. That sounds silly until you see it in practice in the legal world, in practice in the business world, where people are only hearing about 60% of what folks are saying to them. 
and then they're taking action based on what they heard. That's incomplete, and it's not particularly helpful. I think the number one quality for a trial lawyer in this day and age is the ability to listen. So, you know, I take it back to that. Great advice. Of course, you have a practice. I'm sure there's expectations on a yearly basis around what type of billing you'll be doing, what kind of remuneration your firm will receive for the work that you're doing. Do you have a strategy? Do you have a sense going into each year or each period of where your billable hours are going to be coming from? Can you do any kind of planning based on your practice area and how many resources you're going to need on your team? You know, how occupied your team members will be going forward, say in a, the next quarter, the next two quarters. How do you strategize about how you're going to be able to deliver for your firm and for your practice? Like any business today, law firms engage in zero-based budgeting. So as the group leader of the intellectual property group, I'll be entrusted with the preparation of a budget before year end for the next calendar year. To prepare that budget, I need to know what kind of workflow we have in the house. I need to anticipate what kind of workflow we're going to have. You know, as I said, history is a pretty good teacher. And so I can look at historical performance of certain timekeepers and understand a range of where they tend to fall. And then you just have to worry about the unexpected settlement or the unexpected resolution or changes in the law that can have a significant impact upon the business base. And you try to factor all of that in as you prepare a budget. And if you do it well and you've done it enough, and I'm in my 14th year of doing it here and was a group leader at another firm of a litigation group for three years before that. So after about you know, 17 years experience, you get to be pretty good at it. And it's interesting because people don't change a whole lot. Your top producers tend to stay your top producers. Your hardest workers tend to stay your hardest workers. Those on the margins tend to stay on the margins. And so after you get to know everybody in your group pretty well, you can make a pretty good prediction about what the year is going to look like. And then you've got to worry about things like the TC Heartland opinion in the IP space which changed the venue game and resulted in much fewer filings in Texas almost immediately and greater filings in the Northeast and Delaware. Yeah, you don't know how to factor in those sorts of things because you, know, you don't really have much control over them. In our own practice, I knew about the TC Heartland decision. I knew it was pending. And over the last years, I've been consciously decreasing our presence in Texas while building up our presence in the Northeast. That proved to be a pretty wise decision given the way T.C. Heartland came out, where venue is shifting from the Eastern District of Texas to Delaware. And so, you know, you hope that you can plan for those contingencies, but you never know for sure. Sometimes you just need a little luck. You were thoughtful about the coming change and you knew that a shift, you were taking a calculated risk that that shift would occur. You know, that said, you mentioned you know people and they don't often change, you know, especially after a period of time. For those that are, quote unquote, your hardest workers, are they going out and presenting themselves regularly in the market? And is that why they have more business or are they just assigned to particular cases? You know, how are, how are you helping your team or how are they working with you to 
make sure that there is a market and consistent business for Aiken Gump? Besides the newsletter, is it you know a lot of speaking? Is it making sure that each of the members of your team are using their strengths to ensure that the community that knows them and is surrounds them knows how well they would perform on their client's behalf? You know, what does that part of the strategy look like when you truly have to make sure that you're gaining new clients and doing more cases for the clients you have today? Well, there are different paths and those paths are equally valid. The thing I would say to younger lawyers is please take ownership of your own career. And by that, I mean, you know, publish, speak, establish your credibility with the bench and your peers. That's sort of a first step. And I expect to see that kind of thing happen in the first five years of a lawyer's legal career. Once you've been able to establish some credibility, your track record's pretty important. I often say nobody wants a lawyer that no one's ever heard of. And that's particularly true in the trial space. So if you want to be hired by clients, you have to go out and win some cases because clients are pretty serious about your ability to win. And so those lawyers who are able to go out and try cases and win them generally will get a look at more new business from new clients. And by that, I mean clients for a new day can gump. But it's equally valid to have an important role working on an existing client in such a way that your expertise causes that client to send us much more work than that client might otherwise. And so there's a role for people who don't necessarily have that kind of get up and go where they want to go out and shake hands and bring in new clients because they can build from the existing client base. And both paths are equally valid and both paths are important. And different people's personalities cause them to gravitate to one or another. You know, I, I enjoy bringing in new business. I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy listening and talking with people and finding out about new things. And so I'm one who likes to go out and bring in new clients to the firm. I have a partner who is terrific. He is excellent in every way. He's so busy with the work that he's creating from existing clients, I don't know that he would have time to take a dinner with a new client. And he makes a tremendous contribution to our firm and our practice. So, you know, two different approaches, but equally valid. So a terrific lead into the next question, which is, can you share a success story about an opportunity with a client, a matter, a case, if you have one of those stories, which is your career defining story, or if there is a story of one circumstance where you were able to acquire a piece of business or work on a piece of business that you were surprised that you ended up being the person selected to lead that matter, that case? I was with a high-tech medical company at a social event with the CEO probably, I don't know, four months ago. And we never discussed business at all. We hung out. We attended a concert. We had a few drinks. We had a good time. The next morning, he called me and said, we have a serious problem and we'd like your help with it. And I think that that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have been in front of him, you know, and so, and that sort of thing happens a lot. And it doesn't happen as a product of discussing his problem at the social event. It's more that if you stay in front of people who are buying your services and you're in their thoughts, they say, well, you know, I had a good experience with Steve. The last time we worked on a matter together, let's work on a new matter together. And for that, I would tell folks, look, nobody ever got hired sitting in their office. You need to be out there. You got to be out there talking to clients, going to events sponsored by clients, 
going to industry association events that involve your clients, you've got to be visible if you want to have that kind of success. And so I tell our young lawyers all the time, you should be in your office only when you need to be in your office. And the rest of the time, you should be out there because we're in a service business. And part of being in a service business is our clients expect us to go to them. They want to see us. You know, the more you're in a client's office, the more business you're going to get. And you can do that in many different ways. Secondment has become very popular in the last 10 years where we actually take a young lawyer and put them in-house at a client and we pay for it. And we get invaluable experience and valuable insight. Uh, And then that young lawyer comes back to us and the folks at that client have grown accustomed to asking that young lawyer questions and it forms a very nice relationship. So I'm a big advocate of secondment. Absolutely tremendous practice. And And I think one that has a lot of benefits, the physical presence, everyone knows and are reminded that they have a relationship with your firm by having that person, you know, on site. Plus they're building relationships with other lawyers who may go on to other organizations. And of course, they're getting to understand the business. I have a partner who was at a client two weeks ago and he was working in an empty office at the client and the client brought a different client representative in and said, don't you folks at Aiken Gump have a terrific trade regulation practice? And he said, yes, we do. How can I help you? They said, we have some thorny trade issues. Can you bring somebody out here to sit down with us? That only happened because he was sitting in their offices doing some work completely unrelated, but because he was there and because a problem arose and because he ran toward that problem, we ended up with the work for a completely different group. It's interesting. I worked with actuaries for a number of years. And one of the challenges we had is when someone approached them about something that wasn't their specialty area, they would often not be comfortable even responding at all. And to have a lawyer sit and say, well, tell me more. Can you explain it further so I can have the appropriate team within our organization talk with you? I mean, that's a big part of it. Having professionals feel comfortable that they can have a business conversation about an area outside their practice area needs to be somewhat part of that. Do you feel that they are comfortable asking questions? Is that part of the success of programs like that? For many years, we've used our partner retreats to make certain that all of our partners understand the strengths of all of our other practices. And I think we've done a mighty good job of that. And in the last two years, we've now started focusing on being transparent to our associates and counsel and senior counsel so that they too understand all of the various aspects of the strengths of our practices. And one of the things I like about the millennials is they've got that native curiosity. They want to understand our business so that they can help us. And you know, it's resulted in a massive change of the law firm paradigm because for many, many years, there were partners and everyone else. And today, that's just not the case. Today, I think partners have recognized the importance of non-partners and the contributions that they can make and will make if they're included in the discussion. And I think here at Aiken Gump, we've done a magnificent job of including them in the discussion. And you see the result in the story I told you. Especially in today's legal environment where there's a legal ecosystem, we've got project managers, we've got pricing professionals, legal purchasing professionals, legal operations professionals in-house at the clients. There's a lot of other people and many of them are not lawyers and they are part of the makeup of how clients are, I want to say service, but you know, I guess that is the right word, how you're able to provide a solution for your clients. 
And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning into the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. Have there been situations in the last 10 years or so since 2008 where, you know, what had happened prior to 2008 specific to how you worked a case, how a client asked you to use your time and use in exchange for your time, their money and the time of your teams, you know, has it changed? Have clients come to you and said, you know, give us some recommendations on how you think the case is going to result and we'll make a determination based on those recommendations, because cost is a factor. Has that come up or is not really in your practice? I think that with large corporate clients, the driving force today is cost. Most have large firm experience in their in-house counsel's positions now. And they say, okay, we know statistically that 92% of all civil litigation settles. So if we know that 92% of it settles, should we be concerned with our ability to win it or should we be more concerned with our ability to manage it? And I think large corporate clients are much more concerned today with their ability to manage it to a budget. They want predictability of legal spend. They want a low cost provider. They're looking for creative ways to get to a lower cost. And I'd say that's the driving force I see today. And that's very different from how things were in the 1980s and 1990s, where clients wanted a winner and weren't looking at it from the point of view of 92% of cases settle, so let's hold down the cost. The other aspect I've seen a lot of in the last five to 10 years is that a lot of clients will come to me and say, if we have to try this case, we want you involved. But if we don't have to try it, we want to hold down the costs. So use your junior people to run the case and we'll tell you when we want you to get involved in it yourself or if we want you to get involved yourself. It's not ideal from my perspective because I'm the kind of lawyer who likes to know the file really well. But I have clients now who come to me and say, okay, we can't settle this. So trials in two and a half months, we'd like you to get involved and try the case. Well, the case may have been going on for three to five years. And so when you talk about trying to play catch up, but you know, that's fairly common now. Again, with larger clients, I find that the entrepreneur clients, the smaller clients, the mid-market clients, they still pretty much want a winner. They want to know that they can go up against the big company and have a lawyer that's been to the courthouse and won some verdicts and are less concerned with the budget, curiously, because they're smaller. But I think they're more concerned with winning. I think your major companies, your Fortune 500, are more concerned with cost control and predictability of legal spend. So that's interesting because those smaller entrepreneurial companies are likely, you know, whatever case is out there is a bet the company case, right? It is really about their ability to go forward or represents, if, especially if they have to pay something, a significant portion of their revenue. Well, and you've still got a human being calling the shots in the CEO position. 
you know, when companies get larger, one of the things that happens to them is everybody becomes risk averse. When companies are smaller and still growing, they're scrappy. Their CEO is sparring for a fight. They want to win that fight. It's just a different kind of attitude. And I'm generalizing, and I recognize that that's dangerous because, you know, if you take a company like Apple, who we do not represent, they're pretty aggressive. They're pretty scrappy. Of course, they're sitting on a large war chest, which allows them to be pretty aggressive and pretty scrappy. So, you know, in many ways, Apple behaves like a much smaller company when it comes to litigation. So, like I say, it's hard to generalize, but I'm just telling you based on my experience what I've seen. For you personally, when you think about your career, what pieces of advice, either through your own experience or from what you're seeing out in the legal market today, what advice would you share with those folks coming to you and saying, you know, wow, I want to have the success that you've had, especially when it comes to obtaining new clients? Of course, you've had a lot of career success, you know, in front of juries and in your work, but in getting clients to really respond and want you to work on their business. What advice would you give to other lawyers coming up about how they can create an environment for themselves that allows them to have similar success? My wife gave me a block of silver when we first got married, and it's engraved. And it says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And I think that's a great way to think about it. You know, if you're afraid to ask for business, you're never going to get any. And let's be realistic. I would tell you statistically that nine out of 10 cases I ask for, I don't get. But if I don't ask for 10 out of 10, I'm never getting that one that I will. And so you have to approach business development with those words engraved on my wife's block of silver. You know, just what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And if you approach it that way, good things are going to happen. You have to be able to handle rejection well, you know, because most of the time, Clients are going to tell you, oh, no, I've already got another firm or I'm going in a different direction. You know, and I've heard people talk about hunting firms and farming firms. In the IP world, it's all farming in the sense that I may call on somebody this week. I may not hear from them for three years, but I've planted a seed that's going to grow. I have a client relationship that's been extremely profitable for our firm. I met with them initially five years before they ever hired me. I stayed in front of them, would see them at various events. I would talk to them. I would take them to dinner and lunch, but it took them five years to find the right case. And then once we found the right case, we found a number of cases to work on together. But it takes a little bit of patience. You know, you have to know that just like farming, you're planting a seed, you got to take care of that seed, make sure it doesn't freeze, water it, fertilize it, and hopefully it grows into a plant one day. Absolutely agree. First off, I have to say, I have heard it in my career as a business developer that, you know, so often we hear, you know, great job. We would have loved to work with you. We've gone a different direction. And people are very nice about it <laughs> when they're rejecting your proposal to do business with them. And it, and it does take, you know, that effort. And I talk about volume a lot, a lot of at-bats. So interesting though, Stephen, you said, you know, nine out of 10 times. I mean, do you really think your success rate of not pitching formally, but asking for the business is one out of 10? Or was that just an example? Because if it is one out of 10, have you seen any patterns in that one? I've seen no patterns in that one. And anecdotally, I would tell you it might be two out of 10, but it's no higher than that. If you think about all the drivers for different clients today, I mean, you know, it's funny because most lawyers sit in their office and they get a report every morning of every lawsuit that gets filed. And they generate an email to whoever they know at the company, 
along with emails from another 150 lawyers who are doing the same thing. And here's some advice I would give, and I think our clients would appreciate it. You know, don't send an email to every client you know for every case you see that's filed because that's just not productive. You know, if you don't have something unique that you bring to the table, and by that I mean a record of success in the court, a record of success against opposing counsel, a particular knowledge of the technology involved, a particular knowledge of the litigants involved, something that's a value add, then clients routinely tell me, hey, don't, you know, don't fill up my inbox with email. The second thing I'd say about that is email's not going to get you hired. Pick up the phone and have a conversation. That's going to get you hired. I have never been hired sending somebody an email. Never. And we have a huge apparatus at our firm designed to provide the sort of information to enable me every morning to send out a whole bunch of emails. I've never had anybody call me back and say, got your email, want to hire you. And I challenge any of your listeners to come up with an example of where that's happened for them in any significant case. It just doesn't. And when you talk to the clients, they don't like it. It's interesting because there's all these systems out there and they're really marketing machines that send these emails based on different factors. Absolutely agree with the two points you just made and that idea of staying in front of clients when they don't have a case, you know, at that particular moment or one when wasn't filed this morning. And that that proactive work is a huge part of it. And then of course, having that niche or that super niche or power niche as one of our most recent guest talked about and being able to say, you know, my experience in this particular space, in this particular area on cases similar to the one that you've just filed is a huge factor. And putting yourself at the at the front of those 150 emails that might come in or the two phone calls that might be placed to earn their business. If you look at so much of client of marketing as designed by marketing professionals in a big law firm, I'm always amused by the messaging because, you know, these taglines people use and it's like, okay, we're big, we're global, we're bigger, we're more global. Uh, yet, and none of that means anything to the person who's just been sued for patent infringement because that person is saying, okay, what's the value add? You know, and if you just send out your firm brochure with an email, that tells them nothing about the value add. Most of the clients in the IP space want to see a preliminary analysis of the case. You know, they want you to work up the patents, tell them, you know, where they have winning arguments, demonstrate some knowledge of the technology, share that with them for free, betting on the come, so to speak, you know. And so I see so much of the machinery of large law firms devoted to things that really don't matter. And I shake my head. That's a very interesting point. First off, we're hearing from the general counsel and associate and assistant general counsel that we're interviewing all the different in-house folks. At big companies, Walmart, a lot of the tech companies, we're hearing that they're saying we are asking for potential outcomes. We want to know what you would do first if we did hire you. And a lot of them are doing it proactively. They're saying, you know, if you hire us, this would be our plan. We would do this for second and third. And of course, there's if this, then that type of outcomes with that. But they are looking for that. That's part of how they're making decisions today on who they're going to work with on a particular matter, on a particular case. It's a very solid point. I will tell you this, Steve, that I am not a marketer. I'm a business developer. So I have always felt the same, bigger, broader, the best, the brightest. It's shocking that you know we all look at that and it's more a negative than a positive to put that out there because it says basically nothing except the fact that we're willing to spend our time and money coming up with a message that doesn't resonate. You're right. And business detests uncertainty. 
And so, you know, when you think about that as if it were the 11th commandment, business detests uncertainty, you have to give the client certainty. I actually watched a presentation to a client where a client said, well, are you going to win this case? And the lawyer hedged his bets and gave the response one might give in 1978 and said, well, you know, it's in the hands of the judge and the jury. On the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. And the client interrupted him and said, you know, you're really not making a very good case to hire you. And I thought, well, there you go. It wasn't yes, and this is how? No, it was a bunch of gobbledygook. Clients are sophisticated. They know gobbledygook when they hear it. Tell us your plan. You have a lot of energy. You enjoy your work. It's quite evident, both in your success and in our conversation. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I love being a trial lawyer. I get to match wits with the smartest people in the world. I get to be opposite them, and then when the case is over, we go have a beer. Probably my biggest trial victory, certainly my largest verdict, was against one of my good friends, who is a lawyer that I love and revere. The night that I got the verdict, we went out for a drink. So what better than to engage intellectually on difficult and interesting issues with some of the smartest people you've ever met, and then to be friends with them as well. I'm blessed. I love the relationships that I've been able to form practicing law for more than 30 years. I think lawyers are terrific. And I I think sometimes we get a raw deal like used car salesmen and politicians. But I think if you look at the contributions lawyers make to the fabric of our society in any town in which they live, in any state, and on the national scene, you don't see other professions making that type of commitment to the fabric of our society. And And so, you know, the relationships that I've built with judges, with lawyers, I cherish those. I come from a time where if you see a lawyer, you know, walking across the street, you walk across the street and have a chat. And I hope that that never disappears. I really do. Great point. American Lawyer just did a whole group of articles on the pro bono work that is being done and the fact that we have a profession that is committed to doing that kind of work and representing people that otherwise would not have that representation. I mean, that's that's significant. And that is a profession-wide. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And that definitely needs to be celebrated. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners, Stephen. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? It's been a great ride. I think Hunter Thompson said, buy the ticket, take the ride. It's been a great ride. Excellent. Stephen, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time. Oh,